Hey gang, welcome back to Voices in My Head. Just a couple of quick housekeeping things before we start. I hope you've been enjoying Voices in My Head and all the guests that we've been having week after week on this podcast. And if you are, would you please go to iTunes and leave us a podcast review for this podcast. It helps us to gain visibility, it helps us to get more listeners, and it helps me to know what kind of shows you've been enjoying and what you'd like to hear more of. Secondly, if you're able to help out at all in the way of sponsorship, you can go to rickleejames.com or voicesinmyheadpodcast.com, click on the tip jar and sponsorship link, and you can find out there how to give to this podcast. Uh, And I don't like to just ask for something for nothing. So since it costs roughly $11 a show in order to produce this podcast, if you donate $11 or more, I'm going to send you a way to get 11 free songs that I've never before released. 11 free tracks anyway. Some of them are songs I've released, but these are like live recordings, and some of them are unreleased songs. Some of them are things that pertain specifically to the podcast you can't get anywhere else. They're not on CDs, they're not on iTunes, they're not on the internet anywhere, except with this code that I'm going to give you. So if you donate $11 or more, you get 11 tracks. So just my way of saying thank you, and I hope you'll be able to support us. Now, with that being out of the way, I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Thanks so much for being with us here at Voices in My Head. Live from Springfield, Ohio, it's Voices in My Head, the official podcast of Rick James and you're listening to Voices in My Head. If you hear this voice today, do not turn in the window. Welcome back to Voices in My Head. I am your host, Rick Lee James, and I'm happy to be here with you again. Episode number 52. That means 52 weeks. That means a complete year of podcasts I have under my belt. Actually, if you count the bonus episode, uh, we actually have more than that now. But it's great to be with you. Uh, Still celebrating a year here. We are driving quickly towards the new year and towards my annual New Year's Eve concert. So if you are in the Springfield, Ohio area and have not yet got your tickets, uh, the concert's Monday. They're $5 online, or you can get them at Beacon of Hope stores here in Springfield, Ohio. So I hope you can join us, or they're $10 at the door if you show up and just decide you want to buy them there. But we're going to have a great time of food and friends and folks. and I couldn't remember McDonald's thing, food, folks, and fun. We're doing that, but we're also having three great bands, the Italics, Like a Child, and the Rick Lee James Band. So uh, I'm really excited, and it's going to be a great New Year's Eve together. If you're listening to this after New Year's, well, never mind. It's great to have you with us here on the podcast today. My guest today is Dr. Stephen McKenzie. He wrote a fantastic book. Actually, he's written lots of fantastic books, but the one we're going to be discussing today is called How to Read the Bible. That is something that needs to be near and dear to the heart of every Christian. Contrary to what we are often taught in Protestant circles, I know that you know, in the Bible contains everything necessary for salvation, but we really do need training in how to read the Bible. It can be one of the most dangerous and most misused things in the world, and if we do not treat it carefully and properly, we are in danger of misquoting truth. And in a sense, we're not only misquoting truth, we are speaking falsehood, and we're using the Bible to speak falsehood. And so uh, if we come with an understanding of how to read the Bible, how it was intended to be read, what the authors intended when they wrote it, some backgrounds, we actually have a chance at getting at the real heart of Scripture and thus at the real heart of God. And so it was my privilege to be able to have this conversation with Dr. Stephen McKenzie. We're going to be getting to that in just a few moments. Before we do that, there's a a few things that I just want to deal with quickly. One is I was very interested to find that now that we're at the end of 2012, the Huffington Post, their religion section, they posted their 2012 religious stories, the top 10. And one of the things I found very interesting, well, really two of the things, the top two of their top 10, uh, their top stories of the year as far as religion goes, number one was the presence or absence of of God in Newtown, Connecticut. And number two were was about a group of people who are calling themselves 
the nuns. Uh, and I don't mean N-U-N-S. That's actually N-O-N-E-S. The nuns, as in nothing. Uh, two studies came out in 2012 that firmly established a new religious category that appears to be growing rapidly. Those claiming no religion or the nuns, as they have come to be known. This rose to almost 20% of the American population. One in six have become known, rose uh, so rose to almost 20% of the American population, as I just said. Uh, one in six people around the world now consider themselves religiously unaffiliated, making it the world's third largest religious grouping. The nuns are not necessarily atheists, and many of them believe in God or have some spiritual practice. Nonetheless... The rise of those who do not identify with any religious tradition will have enormous implications for the future of faith. I found that very interesting, that that was the number two uh, news story for religious stories on the Huffington Post in 2012. But number one had to do with the presence or absence of God in Newtown. And it's interesting to me that the presence or absence of God seems to be the issue. Uh, people who consider themselves the nuns seem to be dealing with this issue of the presence or absence of God in um, not really a very proactive way. It's just kind of like, I don't know, I think I would consider them maybe agnostic. Maybe there's a God, but so what? But then we come to this question of where was he when a tragedy strikes? And I wonder sometimes, are we really all that concerned with where he is the rest of the time? Especially irreligious folks like the nuns. Um you know, should they even question at that time if they're not going to ask where God is the rest of the time? Are they, you know, do they even have a right to question when tragedy strikes where God was? We don't seem to care about him the rest of the year or where he is and what he's doing. And I find it very interesting that, you know, so many people have been dealing with the presence or absence of God. And a lot of times we, we misquote scripture like, you know, all things work together to the good of those who love him. And, and you know, usually we translate that, unfortunately, like, well, God did this uh, and he did it for the good. It looks bad right now, but it'll turn out good later. Such a terrible misuse of scripture. What that scripture is actually saying would be closer to when tragedy strikes, God will somehow bring good about in spite of this evil thing that happened, which was not connected with God in any way. And I believe that the tragedy in Newtown, just as all tragedies like this, I don't believe God is ever a part of murder or massacre. And to say things like, well, all things happen for a reason, or God allowed that to happen, let me get this off my chest. It's one of my pet peeves. God does not allow things like Newtown, Connecticut's tragedy to happen. God does not allow things like movie theater shootings to happen. God does not allow murder of each other. God does not allow these things any more than a parent would allow their child to murder someone else or to be disobedient. Now, this does not mean that the child does, doesn't do disobedient things. A child certainly has the capacity to be disobedient. That does not mean it is allowed that does not mean that it is permitted. And if the parent can step in and do something about it, the parent will. And I know that brings all these questions about what are you saying? Did, did God not have the ability to step in? I do believe God had the ability to step in. But I also believe in free will. I don't have answers to these questions. I believe that God will somehow bring good about and is already doing good things. But we can't say that God allows these things. To say that is a, a misuse of the language. It's a misuse of saying God allows it, like we're permitted to do something. God does not allow murder. God does not permit murder. God does not allow children to be molested. God does not permit that. When we say God allows it, we're saying he permits it. So we need to watch how we say these things. Um, sorry if that seems controversial. It's just one of my pet peeves because I believe that our God of love does not allow any of those things to happen. Um, they just do happen. They are not permitted. They are not allowed. But they do happen because humans have free will. But in the midst of that, God will still bring about the renewal of all creation. Someday it will come to pass, I do believe, and I believe that's our hope as Christians. All right, sermon over. We're going to get into the next section, a very short one this week called Question of the Week. Question.
Chicken of the Week. Well, there are two, uh, I guess I would call them pop songs uh, that have to do with Jerusalem and have to do with Memphis. Years ago, Ricky Skaggs had a, a moderate hit with a song called Walking in Jerusalem, and then I think Diamond Rio recorded it years later. And then there was another song by Mark Cohn called Walking in Memphis, which was a very big hit, and I'm sure numerous people have covered that over the years. So I thought, well, we have a professor from Memphis today who also spends a large portion of time in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area. So I thought the question of the week could be, would you rather go walking in Jerusalem or walking in Memphis and why? Matthew Cole was our only answer uh, to the question of the week this week. He says, I'm going with walking in Jerusalem. I've been to Memphis, and when I go back again, I'm sure walking will be low on my list uh, after the amount of barbecue I would like to consume. Plus, I have always wanted to visit Jerusalem and many of the sites that are directly connected to the biblical accounts. So thanks for writing in this week, Matthew. I'm with you. I think I would like to go to Jerusalem. I have been to Memphis I loved it, especially Bill Street, and I would love to go back again. But I've never been to Jerusalem, and I think it would be a rewarding trip to be able to go there for sure. So thank you for answering question of the week this week, and I think you're going to find Dr. McKenzie's response to question of the week to be very interesting as well, as he spends a large amount of his year in that part of the world teaching. So um, thanks for playing question of the week this week. Next week's question of the week is, who is your favorite Muppet? and why and that will be on the show with our guest nick flora one of the great new musicians that's out on the scene and i had a great conversation with him which you'll get to hear next week but that is next week's question of the week who is your favorite muppet well i wish i would have had time uh, to have an even longer interview with my guest this week dr stephen mckenzie unfortunately time only allowed a certain amount he has a book called How to Read the Bible, which uh, is very, very good. I had uh, a lot of classes on how to read the Bible in college, and I find that it's hard to find books that are accessible to lay people, that actually help us to read the Bible and understand the form of, of literature, the different forms, actually, of literature that are there. Uh, and doing form criticism is one of the most important things we can do, and that's really what How to Read the Bible by Dr. Stephen McKenzie is about. It's how to come with a form-critical perspective to Scripture, to be able to look at it and decide, is this book history? Is it prophecy? Is it, uh, you know, some other form of literature, like maybe satire? Is this actually comedy, like in the book of Jonah? Um, they are not necessarily history stories in the sense that we have now. Matter of fact, the Bible was written in a way that we would today, those people who are, you know, strict historians, would say, you know, the Bible is not a good example of that, because there isn't tons and tons of history as, as though we would say like fact here, fact here, and this happened and that happened. Matter of fact, the Bible can be so misused because the authors of the Bible actually had a point to write. The authors of the Bible are faith writers, and they had a perspective of the world that they wanted to share. Things like the creation story were not supposed to be told as an example of, hey, this is how the world came to be. This is exactly it. Fact here. Day one did this. Day two did that. Day three. Those were actually stories that had existed in the ancient world that were myths. Nobody really knew how it came about, but they wanted to tell, you know, make the world make sense through some sort of perspective. Well, believers in Yahweh, people who followed God, were also a part of this world, and they wanted to tell this mythological story with a faith perspective. And so they came at it from that saying, how can we talk about God in the midst of these stories that we have floating around the world? What does this mean about God? Who do we know about, you know, who God is? What does this mean to, to walk with him, to live as a person of faith? And it's interesting to me that, you know, I am not a part of a denomination um, that considers themselves literalists in any way. I am not a literalist when it comes to Scripture. I don't believe every period is there because God put it there. I don't believe every question mark because God put it there. Matter of fact, there is no punctuation in Hebrew and Greek like that. Um, English translations have, have been translated from multiple different languages to get us where we have today. So we need to look at that from that perspective. Being a literalist, in my opinion, and in many others, is a very dangerous thing uh, because we can come at it and say, well, if we're going to be literalists, everything that is listed in there 
happened exactly the way it happened. There can be no debate about it, no question. Even when we have like Genesis 1 and 2, who actually, if you read that story carefully, you'll find that they are completely different accounts of how creation happened. There's different orders, there's different things that happen. They do not match up. So you're going to be a literalist. You'll have a hard time getting past the first two chapters. But also with that, uh, there's things like prophecy, which I did not have a lot of time to talk with Dr. McKenzie about. But prophecy is much more forth-telling than it is foretelling. It makes sense that if a literalist is going to believe everything that happened in the past, as shown in the Bible, was absolutely literal, then it would make sense as a literalist that you would look at things about the future of what is to come and say, well, this is going to happen literally exactly like that too. And the fact is, that's just not the way the Bible was written. I would say very little, if any, is actually future-telling when it comes to prophecy. I doubt that any of it, anyone was looking forward and, and saying, oh, this is going to happen and I predict that. Right down to the prediction about Jesus. Those things were written after the fact. They sometimes change different scriptures in the Old Testament. We're going to be talking about things like that today. Um, and we'll find that maybe, you know, sometimes we're kind of hard on the Jews for, you know, well, they didn't accept the Messiah, they didn't believe the Old Testament scriptures. Well, that's not exactly true, because those things actually had a purpose in themselves in the Old Testament. And Jesus, when we look at scripture with him, is actually a way of looking at it through different eyes. The gospel writers had an agenda. Writers of the Bible, we have to realize, have an agenda. They're not just telling things to be factual. They actually have a point in mind in saying these things. So things like the Proverbs, they're, they're not intended to be things like, if you do A plus B, C is going to happen. Um, it's, it's just not that simple, you know, when we look at something like wisdom literature. Um, it's just not things like, this is the end of the world as we know it. Uh, it's not the end of the world as we know it when we look at apocalyptic literature and things. So I would like to refer you to the episode I did with my father, Randy Lee James, who wrote a book on Unraveling the Revelation, which has to do a lot with apocalyptic literature. We didn't get a whole lot of time to talk about this with today's episode with Dr. McKenzie, but his book is so informative, and I hope I haven't misrepresented him at all in his book. But once again, the book we're discussing, How to Read the Bible, which is a form-critical look at Scripture, goes through and has some great ways to help us understand the Bible in its proper context and the way it was intended to be used, which is the way that I want to read Scripture, and I hope that you do too. I hope you're going to enjoy this conversation that I had with Dr. Stephen McKenzie, and I want to thank you for listening to Voices in My Head. Merry Christmas, as we are still in the Christmas season. I don't know if a lot of you know this, but the Christmas season actually starts on Christmas Day, and it's a 12-day long season uh, after Advent. So Merry Christmas to you, and have a Happy New Year as well. Blessings. My guest today is Dr. Stephen McKenzie. Dr. McKenzie is professor of Hebrew Bible and Old Testament at Rhodes University in Memphis, Tennessee. He is also a very accomplished author, and the book that we're going to be discussing today is How to Read the Bible. Jonathan Kirsch, author of God Against the Gods, says of the book, It's authoritative and provocative, often witty and always insightful and illuminating, an essential tool for modern readers of the Jewish and Christian scriptures, allows us to see the familiar biblical landscape in wholly new and illuminating ways. Well, Dr. McKenzie, thank you for being my guest today on Voices in My Head. My pleasure. Well, we always ask our guests a question of the week, and listeners actually go onto our uh, website and answer these same questions every single week, so we get a lot of different ones. And because you are a professor who spends quite a bit of time actually in the Middle East, and you are an Old Testament professor, but you also live in Memphis, I had to, I had to scratch my head a little bit and try to think to how to connect those two things for our question today. So... Here it is. It's it's sort of a long a long shot, but since you've been to both places, you can probably answer this. Um, there's a couple songs that have been written uh, in the past years that have been moderate hits on the, the radio stations. One was called Walking in Jerusalem, and another one has been called Walking in Memphis. So your question of the week is: If you had a to, uh, if you had the choice between Walking in Memphis or Walking in Jerusalem, where would you prefer? 
Oh, Jerusalem. All right. Any any reasons for that? Um, well, for one thing, despite what um, a lot of people think or what's in the news, it's a lot safer hmm. uh, in uh, in just about any Middle Eastern city than it is in the, in, in most U.S. cities. Hmm. Um, more scenic, a lot more history, um, a lot of uh, cultural variety. So plenty, yeah, lots of reasons. Very good. Well, that sounds like a good choice, and uh, hopefully I'd, I have actually walked in Memphis, and I've never had a chance to do that in Jerusalem, but I hope to one day. Well, we're going to segue now into uh, talking about your book, and I was very thrilled when I picked this up a while back because I just feel like one of the uh, the weaker points that we have in spite of all the uh, books that we have and all the Christian bookstores and all the different sorts of Bible, one of our great weaknesses is actually in how to read the scripture. And when I grabbed your book uh, off the shelf a, a few months ago on how to read the Bible and started reading through it, I thought, oh, great, finally a book that is accessible, um, that people maybe without a biblical degree, as well as those who are quite learned, would be able to sit and actually start to look into scripture and start to understand it beyond just our modern understanding. So I wonder if you could talk to us just a little bit about some of the dangers of misconstruing the genre of a piece of literature, first of all. Um, sure. Um, well, I think it's uh, maybe the place to start would be to consider um, modern literature. If you try to read a, um, say, a, if you, say you're a doctor, a physician, and you try to read a manual, um, a, a, like a manual for surgery or something like that, as though it's a science fiction, um, you know, you're, you're going to be very confused and potentially do a lot of damage to patients. Um, similarly, if, uh, if you try to read um, science fiction as though it's history, um, that's also going to lead to a great deal of confusion. So we have um, within within uh, our own literature, and every culture has this, we have different genres, different types of literature. We go to a bookstore and there's uh, fiction and nonfiction. And then within each of those larger categories, there are all kinds of different genres. And... Um, we, uh, because genre, literary genre is something that's almost innate, something that you pick up as part of your culture, um, when we pick up a newspaper article uh, or, or even see one on the web, we usually don't have to be told that this is a newspaper article as opposed to science fiction. We, we kind of pick that up uh, immediately. Um, but when we're dealing with ancient literature, uh, that's outside of our culture and outside of our time frame, it becomes uh, more difficult uh, for us as, as readers who are removed culturally and uh, in time to, to be able to discern those differences. The problem is, when it comes to the Bible, that for um, a lot of Christian history uh, and, uh, and also for even for modern Jewish readers, we're, we, we don't... Um, really make the those distinctions. We kind of go in like bulls in China shops um, and uh, assuming, we make a lot of assumptions about the nature of this material that may or may not be justified. Uh, that is, the biblical literature doesn't usually tell us what its genre is. So we make all kinds of assumptions that then lead us to uh, conclusions and a lot of times those conclusions are are wrong as a result, I think. Hmm. And uh, you gave a great illustration in the book of a movie that I'm sure a lot of my listeners are familiar with, and you mentioned Galaxy Quest. And, right. Uh, that, that's actually a, a really good illustration because I remember in that film they had looked back at a sci-fi TV show, this other alien culture that was on Earth, something like Star Trek, and taken it to be fact instead of the fiction that it was and based their whole civilization on that. And it really is quite a funny movie, but I, I feel like sometimes we do that exact thing when we're looking at Scripture. So Yeah, we're not uh, aliens from outer space, but we are aliens in some ways to the to the culture and to the language and to the literature. We're not surprised when 
the biblical writers don't write in English. Um, we, you know, we realize, we recognize, if we think about it, that that wasn't their native language. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we don't expect them automatically to uh, to be writing in our language. Although we do sort of often assume that that's what they've done, but um, but it's at least you know not uh, shocking to us. But um, we also shouldn't expect them to have our same worldview, and we shouldn't expect them to have our same a set of uh, literary genres. And, uh, and, and so that's, that's another set of assumptions that, uh, that we bring to the text. Now, in your book, it's mainly about form criticism and bringing that into the Scripture. And I wonder if you could just describe to my listeners, if, just in case they're not familiar with it, um, what is form criticism and why is it so useful to the study of Scripture? Well, so form criticism is, is, first of all, don't be confused by that term criticism. It, it's uh, basically simply a term that re- refers to careful reading. So form criticism uh, is a technique that play, pays uh, close attention to the form or the literary genre uh, of a, a particular piece of, um, of literature. So uh, Form and and genre are slightly different, but basically um, one of the things that one tries to do is to determine uh, what the original uh, size of a a piece of literature was. Was it, if we have a poem, um, is it it only that poem or is that poem embedded within a larger uh, piece? If you're reading a lot of times the the best illustration of this is if you're reading in the prophets um they don't usually tell you okay this is where one prophecy ends and another one begins they don't mark those mm-hmm. you have to pick them out pick out uh you know make out the differences in some other way so you know discerning the the length of the piece is is a good starting place and then what's the um What's the structure of a piece? How is it organized? Um, is it uh, is it you know we we have paragraphs and we have uh, punctuation that we use. Uh, none of that really is uh, is used in the original manuscripts of biblical literature. Um, but even beyond punctuation, uh, what are sort of the larger units? If it's a story, what's the plot? Um, if it's some other kind of literature, how is it how is it organized? And uh, and then determining the type or the genre of literature is this um, is this fiction is it history writing is it um, a parable is it um, again a poem uh, you know a fable there there are a lot of different genres that the Bible itself uses uh, we we make a mistake when we think of the Bible as a book. Uh, because um, it's, it was not written as a book. It's a collection of literature. It's, a, it's an anthology or a library. So what type of literature is this that we're looking at? And then how was this, um, how was this text used in, in real life? Was it used to celebrate the uh, enthronement of a king? Was it used in uh, a worship setting? Uh, was it used in, as some kind of personal lament? Uh, in loss, is it is it a lamentation of some sort? Was it a funeral, um, part of a funeral ritual? So we have lots of different hmm. options there, and then um, connected with that, what was the purpose of this uh, of this text? Is it to to tell a story? Is it to teach a lesson? Is it to narrate something uh, in the past, something of history? Um, so. Uh, lots of different uh, the, the, those those kinds of things and steps are are uh, things that uh, again are part of that that um, process of reading that we sort of automatically do when we read texts that are in our own language and from our own culture. But we kind of have to force ourselves to do that in stages when we're looking at biblical texts. Exactly. Well, and I, I appreciate you uh, you bringing that out in your book as well. And I, I think uh, when I'm trying to explain this to, to friends sometimes and how to look at Scripture, I, I want to say, well, 
we do have to look at the the differences in these books and where they come from and and what the source material is and i use things like i'd i'd say well you wouldn't read a comic book in the same way that you would read a science fiction book you know in our modern times or a magazine or something like that there's different weights and different things so it's it's a good starting point for us here to to understand that there are so many different genres in the bible and so i appreciate you taking time to explain form criticism to us and your thesis uh, in your book is that the Bible is at large, uh, largely misconstrued because the principal genres have been misconstrued. And you start in the book by spending some time with Jonah and, to help you kind of explain this thesis. And I wonder if you could just share a little bit about that and, and maybe some of our misconceptions about Jonah that we come to. <clears throat> yeah, um, I think Jonah is a really good example. I think the way I would start off is, is just to say that Jonah is a perfect case where um, we make an assumption about its genre uh, when that assumption may not be justified. Uh, the common, uh, typical way of reading Jonah um, for really centuries in a lot of ways has been to read it as um, history. You know, the story of, of this prophet Jonah who goes to Nineveh and uh, tries to get the people there to repent. Um, but the book itself never never identifies its genre exactly, um, and it's clearly a standout. Uh, it's unusual in the setting in which it's located in the in the Hebrew Bible. It's among prophetic literature, but what um, most of those prophetic books have in them is a series of oracles or prophecies. Jonah isn't really that. It's not a collection at all. It's really more of a short story. Hmm. Um, so that, that's one big difference that jumps out at us is that we're we're uh, looking at something that's not a collection of prophecies or oracles, but is a short story. And then we have to ask uh, ourselves, well, what what kind of short story is this? Again, this could be have many different uh, purposes or many different um, aspects to it. Is it to tell a story, uh, to narrate history, or is it um, more along the lines of a parable or a, or a, a satire, a story hmm. designed to teach a lesson? Um, to give a, another kind of example, that, uh, before I continue with Jonah, we uh, a lot of times talk about um, the, the story in Luke chapter 10, and we call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, and almost everybody who who reads that or is familiar with it is familiar with the, with the story and thinks of it as a parable that's designed to teach a lesson. If you look very carefully, though, um, the book itself of, of Luke never actually calls that a parable. The term parable isn't used there. Um, it's a it's a story that Jesus tells. Now, did it really happen? Well, I, I don't know. Nobody knows for sure. And in that case, I think it's clear it doesn't really matter because mm. the point isn't to describe what happened in the past or something like that. The point is to to teach a, a lesson, to draw a lesson from this from this story. Mm. So um, I think Jonah is, is is similar. Jonah doesn't come right out and say what its genre is, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to say that it's history. Uh, there may be some other things going on there, and I think if one reads Jonah carefully, there are some hints within the book that we're not dealing with history. There are some, uh, you know, historical problems with regard to Nineveh and its size, and um, uh, as compared to the way it's described in the book, there are some things in the book that um, that really don't make sense from a historical or a natural standpoint or even from a logical standpoint. Um, Jonah himself is kind of a an anti-prophet. Um, mm. He reacts just the opposite of every other prophet and what you expect. You know, Jonah, in in some ways, is the most successful prophet in the Bible. He he goes into, in the story, he goes into Nineveh, and he he speaks, you know, just what it would amount in in Hebrew to just five words. And by the way, he says them in Hebrew, whereas <laughs> that's not the language spoken in, in Nineveh. Right. Uh, and yet everybody, you know, repents. Well, um, this is fabulous success according to 
uh, or compared with other stories of prophets in the in the Hebrew Bible who who rarely have anything even approaching that kind of success. And and so you would expect that Jonah as a prophet would be just thrilled at the success, and he's not. <laughs> and know, he, he acts. It's just the opposite. Right, so, and if if memory serves, he you know all this repentance is going on, and he didn't even tell them to do that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. He doesn't tell them uh, to repent. He doesn't. He doesn't uh, explain in this oracle. And if you read the the book um, carefully again, um, it uh, looks to be the case that that it's not just the people who are repenting; it's the animals who are repenting and who are wearing sackcloth and who are praying wow. and who are doing things that. Uh, you know, animals uh, don't do. Um, one of the other peculiarities of the book that doesn't come across in English translations is that the big fish that swallows Jonah changes genders. Hmm. Um, it's a male, and then it's a female, and then it's a male again. Huh. Um, so there are a number of things like that that I think are good hints that we're not dealing with uh, with history here. And that this book probably wasn't written as history. It's written as something else. It's written as a satire or it's written as a, a parable or parody, something designed to, to teach a lesson. Sure. Um, so, uh, but, you know, in the case of Jonah, this has been such a, um, a litmus test for, um, for centuries. You know, if, if you didn't believe or or you saw these things and thought that they were silly or something and uh and and thought well this isn't history hmm. then somehow um you were marginalized or even you know viewed as a heretic or something yeah. um whereas uh whereas there are hints in the book that um it was designed to be a kind of a silly story but a silly yeah. story with a with a serious message Right, and I, I so appreciate how how clearly you bring that out in the book too, and and I I don't think the Bible ever loses anything by us figuring out what the purpose in it being written was originally, and uh, we we right. have such a problem with trying to um, I guess turn squares into circles at times with the way that we approach these things, and what we actually should be doing is what what was the author really trying to say, and with, with that in mind, uh, we might move away a little from Jonah, but I wonder if you could talk to us uh, some about maybe the the difference in the way that history is written now versus the way that hi history was often written when many of the books of the Bible were being formed. Well, I think uh, we have a, um, uh, a large misunderstanding um, about history to begin with. We, we tend to think, um, in general, of history as something object objective, that is, you know um what what happened in the past um and in a sense that's that's true but um it's never so simple as telling exactly what happened in the past uh because for one thing um we're used to our reports coming from um you know eyewitness reporters or television reporters or court reporters um and in in the ancient world, um, there were no reporters. Uh, there were no people with microphones running around and, and documenting everything that, that happened. Um, so to, to begin with, um, in, in the past, um, when people told about history, their sources about the past were uh, were oral sources, or there were where there were things that had already been written. There was no video footage or anything like that. Hmm. Um, so we, the problem is that we come to the Bible and we start reading it, and we, we don't read it, we don't read it really even as history. What we tend to try to read it as is some kind of um, news reporting, you know, hmm. that, that somebody is there on the spot writing down uh, everything that happened. So we don't allow um, for the idea of the sources, we don't allow for the development of traditions, um, we expect it to be something that um, the Bible doesn't necessarily even claim to be and something that um, really from the standpoint of, of uh, considering the nature of ancient history is impossible. So that, that's, a, that's a starting place. Um, and um, then, you know, we also, uh, I think, recognize 
that uh, to some degree that even in our in our modern world when somebody is writing history they're rarely writing history just for the purpose of talking about what happened in the past there's always something else some other purpose going on you know to and 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 therefore um the uh you know history is uh, or the the nature of history is dependent on the um objectives and the interests and so on of the historian so if you uh you know again we're sort of well aware of this at one level if you um if we have say two uh versions two histories of the civil war and one of them is written by um a, a northerner during the 1960s um that's going to be quite likely a very different history from say one that's written in 2012 by somebody from uh you know Alabama sure uh, so so we we recognize that there's going to be differences that everyone has a different um uh you know, you know purpose in writing and telling the story uh, and in looking back um and i think that that same thing is true of ancient history and of the bible uh, as well that we have writers who are telling these uh, stories or these traditions about the past but they're not just interested in telling the past for the sake of the past they're interested in relating the past somehow to their present to their time hmm. um so a lot of what they are often trying to do is to explain to use history to explain how it is that they've come to the present or or to explain the situation that they're in at the present if you take for example the um just in the bible the the book of kings um the story of the kings of israel well the and 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 most people recognize that it's not just the book of kings but the previous two books before that of samuel and of judges um so this is part of a long history but but the um whoever writes this at least in the form that we have it now isn't just interested in telling about the past what they're looking at is what happened to Israel and what happened to Judah and they're asking you know what theological lessons what what lessons can we uh, gain from from this from the past so they're going to tell their history in a particular in a particular way um and uh, I, I think that that that's something that um we need to be sensitive toward or that helps us maybe to to get a grasp of what the ancient writers are doing. And I think that was very illuminating in your book as well because we are so uh fact oriented today and you know if some of the things you describe if you were to say take a modern historian we really frown today on someone putting their own agenda but it was very interesting how you know you write that they these people actually who were recording this history did have an axe to grind and to to a certain extent and they they did want to make a theological or political point in the things that they were writing and and that was much more important than just the fact 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 they actually wanted to tell something and explain you know their 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 context from their point of view and and how that goes so that was very interesting to read about in the book um we're we're not going to have time to talk about everything i wanted to talk about today but hopefully we can get a few more things in here today um i i live not far from a place called the creation museum uh, here in ohio and uh to me that is one of the most um highly debated and and people put so much time and energy and uh so many resources into things like you know we've got to prove creation to be factual um and and to me they're missing the point of why uh the book is written and what etiology was all about because you know we we know that the bible wasn't necessarily written just to be some sort of fact 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 history book we're actually asking you know what what is this saying about god so i i'd love to ask just a little bit if i could in the time that we have can you talk to us a little bit about let's say a story like the flood in genesis and um like versions of that story that are actually much older than our genesis account and uh, just just maybe talk to us a little bit about that i think my listeners would find that very interesting sure um well um and and you're beginning at the right place um with creation um 
we you know we have the the story um, in Genesis one, but then there is in Genesis two and three what um, most biblical scholars recognize as a uh, a second and originally separate uh, version of creation. Um, if if you just focus, for example, and, and I'll come back to that point in a moment, but if you focus, for example, just on the the text in Genesis chapter one. Um, that's a case, uh, I think a clear case of us missing the genre and missing the point. Um, here we have these uh, s- these different days of creation and the different installments and people work awfully hard and have been working awfully hard to try to prove that the world's created in six days at a certain time frame. Well, if you look at that um, story very carefully and begin uh, pointing out some of the, you know, do a nice form critical study on it and look at the way that it's organized and the way that it's structured. Um, what immediately sort of begins to emerge is that this is a, a story uh, or a, a way of, of, cre- of telling about the creation of the world and the main thing that's, that seems to be foremost in the author's mind at that point is to have that creation take place in six days. It's very, very neatly done. But if you look at days three and six, for example, there are actually two categories of things created on each of those days. So that it looks like you know, it really should be a creation in eight installments, but it's kind of scrunched up into six days. Hmm. And the clear reason for that is to um, uh, to leave uh, the seventh day, the Sabbath, as as a day of rest, which is then a very, very powerful argument for keeping the Sabbath. Hmm. Um, so, that, so that the real interest of the writer is in a is in a priestly concern or a religious interest. You know, uh, God Himself keeps the Sabbath. Who are you to ignore it? Hmm. You know, God uh, kept the Sabbath, and the Sabbath is ingrained in the very foundation of the universe. So, it's really making a claim about the Sabbath. Now, to to go back to what I started to say, you, we have the creation account in Genesis one. We have another one in Genesis 2 and 3, and and actually there are some others even uh, elsewhere in the Bible. But the flood story that we have in the Bible actually is, uh, and its origins, was um, part of the creation story. It comes from Mesopotamia, uh, modern day, basically Iraq. And um, the, 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 in its original sort of version, um, it's a story about a figure, um, a human figure named Atrahasis, and um, this, uh, the gods, because Mesopotamia is a place that had uh, many gods, so the gods create the universe and then create human beings to do the work of the gods. Hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, as, as if you think about what you might know about Greek and Roman mythology, it's very similar to that. They, you have some gods who sort of like people and some gods who don't. And there's one god in particular who keeps trying to uh, get rid of human beings. Why? Because they keep him awake at night. Uh, they're too rowdy. They're too noisy. And um, so eventually he tries a number of different things, but eventually um, he tries a flood. And the flood works fairly well, um, but you still have some survivors and what this uh, did in the ancient in ancient Mesopotamia was then that the flood, this this myth of the flood, became the um, pardon the pun the watershed um, <laughs> between sort of the world before the flood and the world after the flood, and you had lifespans that were much longer before the flood than they were after the flood, uh, and and this sort of thing. Now there again, we're not dealing here with history. We're dealing with another kind of genre, type of genre, what we would call mythology. And um, uh, but but the biblical writers who are trying to tell about the past, they want to start at the very beginning, so they use the sources available to them, including um, mythology, maybe some directly from Mesopotamia, and they include this story of uh, a borrow from the version of the flood, and that's why in in Genesis, you have the story in Genesis, the first 11 chapters. Well, one of the things you notice is uh, 
you know, the flood there is also a watershed. People live much longer lives, according to the story before the flood, than they do after. And you have the same kinds of um, of changes. So um, this is also uh, the biblical writers making use of a uh, genre, uh, a kind of literature that's around at their time. And this this is often a very threatening word for people sometimes to hear this term mythology. But if you look at, for example, Christian hymns, and even in some of the New Testament, it's very clear that we do this all the time. Sure. Um, look, look around, for example, well, we're coming up, just a, a real quick example off the cuff, we're coming up on the Christmas season. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, uh, you know, we can document historically this this is uh, not the time of the year, probably, when Jesus would have been born. The reason why we celebrate uh, Christmas on December 25th is that what early early Christians did, particularly in the Middle Ages, was to borrow and transform older pagan practice, older pagan older pagan customs. So it was the winter solstice. Mm-hmm. So um, we're borrowing and reusing those things and, and investing them with new meaning. Hmm. And that's a really interesting part of the book, and I, I want to encourage everyone uh, who hasn't read your book, How to Read the Bible, uh, to go out and, and get a copy of that. You can find it on Amazon or probably in a store nearby you. But um, And I know we were going to try to go about uh, 30 minutes. you have just a, a few more minutes we could talk? Because I'd love to talk to you just uh, about one thing in particular since you mentioned Christmas. Sure, go ahead. Um, well, um, one, one thing that's very interesting is this time of year, which you already alluded to, was um, we we oftentimes um, look back at the Old Testament as pointing ahead to Jesus, and we all often have this real um, maybe condescending attitude towards people of the Jewish faith, and uh, and just like, well, how didn't they get it? Why don't they understand that Jesus wasn't the Messiah? You know, <laughs> or whatever, right. and. And if we're actually form critical about this, we would actually maybe see it's not quite as obvious as we would like to think. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that and, um, you know, things like Micah 5 and Matthew 2 and, and different things that appear? But um, And I'll just let you talk about it a little bit. You, you, I'm sure, can explain it much better than I can, but I just find that very interesting in this time of year that we're heading into. Well, what we what we have in the... In the um, New Testament is, um, or, or let me rephrase it, let me put it this way. We don't, as Christians, I think, uh, often understand our own history very well. Hmm. Um, and one of the places where we haven't got a good grasp on that is uh, at the very, very beginnings of what we call Christianity. We fail to recognize, that even though it's clear in the New Testament, that Christianity grew out of um, Jewish roots, hmm. and um, you know Jesus is Jewish. Um, the early followers of Jesus are all Jews, uh, and so when um, the earliest followers of Jesus, um, after his uh, death and so on, when they are are um, uh, you know beginning this this new track. Um, they don't think of themselves as starting a new religion at all. They they are uh, Jews, and um, the only difference between them and other Jews um, is that they believe that, that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus has come. Hmm. And so as this, uh, this develops then, um, over time, and you get in, in the book of Acts and reflected elsewhere, uh, growing pains of this early group um, as it grows away from uh, the centers of Judaism and Judea and so on and, and begins to move into the larger Greco-Roman world. And that's when the religion, you know, Christianity, really begins to uh, change and to separate itself from from Judaism. Hmm. Um, so so they're, they're beginning to, uh, uh, to, to grow apart. And um, what that means is early on, um, if you look at the, the Gospel of Matthew that you cited, um, one of the things that Matthew is doing and that early Christian writers and early interpreters do, Matthew and Paul does the same thing, is that they're using the same standards of interpretation that they've learned 
from rabbis and others. And these are the same techniques that um, that people who are Jewish, who aren't Christian at the same time, same basic techniques that, that they're using. So, for example, I mean, one, one simple but, but very good example, I think, is if you look at um, Matthew uh, 1, at one point, he, he uh, refers to, he, he has the story of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph going to Egypt, and then he has a quote from the Hebrew Bible Old Testament from the book of Hosea, um, where it says, uh, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Well, Matthew only cites that second half, the out of Egypt I called my son, as, and, and he refers to it as a fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the Hosea passage originally, he's clearly talking not about Jesus, but he's talking about the Exodus and the people of of, uh, of Israel. Right. So, um, but Matthew is reusing some of this same language and, and ideas, um, and and he's referring to it as fulfillment. Uh, I think there are two things here. Uh, the, the main thing is we, I think, sometimes have a very, very narrow idea of what uh, Matthew and these other writers meant by fulfillment. We have this model of prediction. You know, it's the Nostradamus model, right? With prediction right. And, and fulfillment, <laughs> prediction, fulfillment. But um, in Matthew's use, um, first of all, that term fulfill is, is used with much fuller meaning. Uh, for one thing, in the Sermon on the Mount, he has Jesus say, uh, you know, um, you've heard that it was said of them of old, for example, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, well, what Jesus is doing is he's quoting things like the Ten Commandments, or he's quoting things from the uh, law in ancient Israel, but then he's going on to say um, that that what he means by fulfillment isn't. He, he even says, "I'm not here to do away with the law and the prophets," by which he means the Hebrew Bible, but to fulfill. And I think what he means by fulfill is to bring them to their full original meaning or full original intent. You know, so uh, it used to be, uh, "You shall not kill," but I say to you, whoever hates somebody. You know? mm. Um, so he's, he's really getting at the real heart. So, so Matthew's using the, the term that way, um, with, with investing with this much broader meaning. Hmm. I use in the in the book, and we had talked about this uh, an example from here in Memphis, from the Civil Rights Museum, sure. where as you're going in, there's a plaque that has a quote from Genesis on it, from the Joseph story that says, uh, "Behold, you know, here comes the dreamer." Uh, let's arise and kill him and see what will become of his dreams. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, a hundred percent sure that whoever wrote Genesis wasn't thinking of Martin Luther King when he wrote that. <laughs> right. Um, but those, but those words are very appropriate and they ring true. You know, because of the I have a dream speech of King's because he was a minister because he quoted from the Bible, etc. So it's a different kind of, of fulfillment, I guess. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, well, that is very interesting, and I, I appreciate you taking some time out of your day to come on here and, and just to explain some things to our listeners. So one more time, I want to make sure everybody knows the title of the book. It's How to Read the Bible by Dr. Stephen McKenzie, uh, and it's actually Stephen L. McKenzie, just in case there's any other authors by the name of Stephen McKenzie. Uh, it's a really interesting read, and I, I think that you'll find it's a You'll, your Bible reading will be much richer if you can understand some of the forms and the genres that are in it when you go to it. And I know, Dr. McKenzie, that your hope in writing this book was not to deny, um, you know, the divine inspiration of the Bible, or but to affirm whatever the origin was, divine or human, and to recognize different genres as an essential part of the process of understanding Scripture. So I, I just want to thank you for your work and your contribution because I think it's gonna, it has been and will continue to help a lot of people, and hopefully my listeners will pick up a copy of this book as well. So, thank you. Well, thank you for being my guest today on Voices in My Head. It has been a real privilege, and uh, I hope you have a very happy holiday season. Thank you. Same to you. Well, 
I know there's a lot to take in on today's episode. I appreciate Dr. Stephen McKenzie and him taking time to be on the podcast today. It's a great book. I really challenge you to read it. How to Read the Bible, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it really just about any place books are sold online. It's a really interesting read, and I think you'll find it's very beneficial to you as a believer, or maybe even as a non-believer. If you want to understand the way that Scripture was written, I think you'll find that some of the misconceptions... Maybe some of the reasons people actually leave the faith is because of their misconception about Scripture and why and how it was written. I actually find that when you read the Bible from a form-critical perspective, that you actually will start to make sense of Scripture possibly for the first time. That it seems uh, much less mystical and uh, much less uh, foreign to your understanding, but it can actually help and encourage and nurture your faith by reading this way. Um, Well, it's been great. And I appreciate you listening to Voices in My Head. Next week, my guest is Nick Flora. You are not going to want to miss it. He is an incredible, incredible musician, a terrifically nice guy, and is also a podcast host. So uh, he has a podcast called Who Writes This Stuff? And it's great. You need to check it out. So I'll leave you with that for today. Thanks for listening to Voices in My Head. I am Rick Lee James. Happy New Year and blessings to you. You've been listening to Voices in My Head the official podcast of Rick Lee James. If you'd like to know more about me, my ministry, my music, my life, go to my website at rickleejames.com. And I'd love this to be a community experience. So if you call 937-505-0162, you can leave feedback, you can give me suggestions for future shows, you can even record comments that I can play on the next podcast. So let's make this something really great together. 937-505-0162. Thank you so much for listening to Voices in My Head, the official Rick Lee James podcast. God bless.